dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what is it that makes it such a very great day today? Let me tell you what it is, is the fact that the nation is going on with its business, uh, celebrating the Mariners' win last night on opening day. What a terrific game and a sellout crowd. Uh, basically, people preparing for their weekend going forward and the predictions of death and destruction, the predictions of mass protests everywhere over Donald Trump's indictment, those predictions are folly just like the prediction that Trump gave 10 days ago that he was going to be uh, indicted actually a while ago, and then they got a different impression, and now the indictment has been handed down. Uh, President Trump is going to be arraigned at 2.15 on Tuesday. That's Eastern time. Will there be huge crowds there? There was a crowd at... Um, at Mar-a-Lago last night, waving uh, pro-Trump banners, um, MAGA banners, uh, Make America Great Again 2024, and people. And I, I've been uh, there, photographs of the gathering around Mar-a-Lago. It's at least a dozen people, uh, maybe even 15, but it's definitely fewer than 20. Okay, why is it? Ask yourself this question. Why is it that with all of the indignation that has been expressed by virtually every Republican out there, including all of President Trump's potential rivals for the Republican nomination, people condemning the prosecution of President Trump, condemning the indictment of President Trump, saying it is uh, political, it is dangerous, it is unconstitutional, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, threatening congressional action to shut down uh, Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor in New York who brought these charges. Uh, by the way, that's completely untenable. The Congress of the United States has nothing to do with the Office of the District Attorney of uh, Manhattan. Uh, there are five different district attorneys, all of whom are elected for the five different boroughs of New York. And Alvin Bragg uh, won a contested race. He got himself elected. He, um, uh, by the way, was not dependent on that election on George Soros. He received some money from a Soros-linked organization. But uh, the idea that uh, all of a sudden... This has been such an outrage and is such a, a problem that we would have the kind of reaction we had on January 6th. I'm very proud of the country, frankly. Very proud of the country that these mass protests haven't mobilized, especially because we haven't even seen what the indictment says yet. There apparently are 34 counts on the charges, uh, and this has been confirmed. Now, that's a lot. I mean, one of the things about the charges against uh, uh, President Trump is that it's not just a sex with a porn star and hush money and the incorrect, dishonest accounting for that money. It also has to do with the way they did a catch-and-kill job involving the National Enquirer on uh, uh, Karen McDonald 
who, uh, McDougal, pardon me, um, who was a Playmate of the Year, Playboy Playmate of the Year, who alleges that she had a nearly year-long affair with President Trump, including assignations of at least two dozen times and expressions of I love you and etc. Okay, the idea that she would be part of the charges against President Trump, well, that would have to do with the fact that uh, Mr. Pecker, and I'm sorry that's his real name, this is not a nickname or a, a derogation of the esteemed editor and owner of the National Enquirer, or co-owner. He was a friend of Trump's, and he cooperated in buying for $150,000 uh, Karen McDougal's story about her relationship with President Trump so that it would just be killed and go in the National Enquirer. Uh, a, another encouraging sign, uh, and again, it, it it is encouraging, despite the fact that I think uh, whoever thinks that they know for sure what the impact of this is going to be on the election, I think is uh, a little bit hasty. It is unclear whether this will end up uh, helping or harming President Trump in the Republican primary. I do think it probably will help him. It probably will help him. But the difficulty is looking forward to uh, a year and a half from now, which is when they have the general election, will actually the idea of President Trump fighting a whole series of indictments, because there are at least three more that are probably coming down the pike, will will that help him or hurt him then? This is one of the distinctions that needs to be made, is it's not a question of help Trump or hurt Trump. It's a question of aid Trump in the primary, where the answer is probably yes, versus the idea of aid Trump in the general election, where it seems to me almost certainly no, because I cannot imagine many undecided voters or independents or let alone Democrats who are going to say, you know what, I've never been particularly turned on by Trump. I've never been a big supporter. But wow, now that he's indicted in Manhattan and he's looking at being arraigned and having to defend himself and having a long and complicated trial. Boy, that's what I want from the next president. I, I Really? Uh, I, I don't think that's very likely. The other good news that I was about to disclose, and it is very good news, is uh, for once, President Biden and even Vice President Harris have shown the good sense to shut up to not say anything about Trump's indictment. As you can imagine, there, there might be some Democrats who are quietly celebrating, as long as you keep it quiet, okay? Because uh, basically what Vice President Harris did when she was asked about this in Zambia, uh, she was asked about the Trump indictment, and the Vice President actually, for once, I think, did uh, the right thing. This is clip five. You've spoken about democracy and the rule of law at every stop in Africa. Given that, what is your comment on former President Donald Trump's indictment? And are you worried that his calls for protest could lead to a recurrence of the violence similar to that of January 6th? 
I am not going to comment on an ongoing criminal case as it relates to the former president. Okay, <laughs> completely appropriate. And uh, President Biden today is in Mississippi touring some of the damage and talking about reconstruction and strictly avoiding comment on uh, this issue. In fact, uh, even White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said only this when she was asked about it this morning. Uh, Clip one. Was the president briefed on the Trump indictment? We found out, all of us, including the president, found out about uh, about the news yesterday, just like every other American, through the news reports. His chief of staff, Jeff Zients, uh, uh, let him know what occurred through media reports. Okay, uh, basically, uh, he got the news as we did in the middle of our third hour of the show uh, yesterday. By the way, we're going to be speaking... Uh, later today about some of the evil plans not of any american politician but of a guy named vladimir putin a plan for uh basically partitioning ukraine we're also going to be talking about the ku klux klan which gained power came close to taking over the country tim egan says in a new book and what defeated the clan ultimately that and much more with a Pulitzer Prize winner, Timothy Egan, that coming up uh, here on a very busy day on the Medved Show. Michael Medved. It's right here and right now and very present, and, and this is the moment. This is the moment. This is the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, still reeling from the news yesterday of the indictment of uh, President Donald J. Trump. On Tuesday, he apparently is not going to resist. There's going to be no games with uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida opposing some extradition. Trump is going to go willingly with his Secret Service detail to report to the court in Manhattan to be arraigned like everybody else because nobody is above the law nobody is below the law and that it seems to me is one of the questions that uh, uh, people need to keep focused on is that uh, there's a great deal of hostility on all sides I mean everywhere uh, against Michael Cohen his former fixer his lawyer who was a key witness apparently in preparing and the evidence for uh, this indictment on 34 counts, 34 different violations. And uh, Michael Cohen was sentenced to three years in prison. He spent uh, most of that under house arrest, but he spent a year uh, basically paying his debt to society, plus uh, in, in intense legal costs, which no, Mr. Trump did not help to pay for him. Uh, And uh, if Michael Cohen deserves a prosecution because of actions that he took at the direction of President Trump, who is named in the conviction papers for Michael Cohen as individual one, 
then what about the person who actually gave the orders that this money, which totals $280,000 between the two women, uh, Karen McDougal and, uh, and Stormy Daniels, Stephanie Clifford is her real name. Uh, then the question is, is there equality here between Cohen and Cohen's employer? Uh, or are they similarly liable for similar misdeeds? Uh, that remains to be seen. But then again, there probably will be a trial at some point. The, um, the one point that, that I want to make before we listen to some more of the reactions from around the world, really, we just heard Nikki Haley, uh, not Nikki Haley, we just heard uh, Kamala Harris speaking uh, from Zambia, where she is still touring Africa. And I'm sure she's glad, as a former attorney general of California and a former district attorney in San Francisco, that she isn't being asked about the particulars of this case. And uh, yes, it's appropriate for Democrats to be quiet about it. The only comment that was made by uh, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the U.S. Senate, he... Uh, he said in a statement that Mr. Trump is subject to the same laws as every American. He will be able to avail himself of the legal system and a jury, not politics, to determine his fate according to the facts and the law. Okay, that, it seems to me, is a statement you can't take much exception with. At the same time, the Speaker of the House, the head of the other chamber of the Congress of the United States... Uh, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, said that uh, Alvin Bragg, he, of course, is the district attorney in Manhattan who has launched this indictment, secured this indictment. McCarthy says Alvin Bragg has irreparably damaged our country in an attempt to interfere in our presidential election as he routinely frees violent criminals to terrorize the public he weaponized our sacred system of justice against President Donald Trump. The American people will not tolerate this injustice, and the House of Representatives will hold Alvin Bragg and his unprecedented abuse of power to account. The, um, how, how do they do that? Because, again, when you are a local representative, not even a state representative, you're elected locally as district attorney of Manhattan, what they're apparently trying to do, at least this is the word as of uh, an hour ago this morning, they uh, are talking about trying to investigate whether the district attorney's office in Manhattan receives any federal money, which it might in which case the uh, Congress would threaten. Uh, but uh, frankly, to get that approved, you need the House and the Senate. And I, I honestly think that there are more important issues uh, going forward than trying to go after Alvin Bragg and to make this a prosecution of him uh, rather than of uh, a President Trump. And, and again, there are three other grand juries uh, that are also at some point or another likely to vote on indictment. And at least two out of the three, uh, most legal experts will tell you, are, are likely to result in further indictments. Now, what does all that mean? 
it means that we have to keep clear two distinctions, it seems to me, in understanding what's happening in our country and what's going on. The two distinctions are, first of all, the distinction we made between being helped in a Republican primary fight, which I think President Trump likely will be, and being helped in a general election, which is a very different audience and a very different reaction. And uh, the idea that there is some kind of sweeping tidal wave of indignation and outrage uh, Mike Pence, who usually doesn't use heated uh, language, called this an outrage. Uh, virtually all of President Trump's potential uh, competitors for the Republican nomination, except for Chris Christie, have uh, jumped on this issue and attacked Alvin Bragg and attacked the prosecution. Uh, for instance, uh, Mike Pence said this. This is clip 15. Well, I think the unprecedented indictment of a former president of the United States on a campaign finance issue is an outrage. And, and it appears to millions of Americans to be nothing more than a political prosecution that's driven by a prosecutor who literally ran for office on a pledge to indict the former president. But it wasn't just uh, Mr. Vice President, and excuse me for interrupting, it wasn't just the prosecutor, the district attorney right. in New York who did this. This was a grand jury, a grand jury of some 23 people, right. and you need a majority, 12, to go ahead and criminally indict. Well, I, I understand that, and it's uh, been a long time since I was in law school, Wolf, but I remember the old saying, you can indict a ham sandwich, right? Okay, uh, again, he's on with Wolf Blitzer at, at this point it, it isn't just a campaign finance violation uh, we don't know exactly what the violations are and the 30 counts are 34 counts uh, we won't get that information the uh, indictment is going to be unsealed and then open to the public to review uh, on Tuesday at 2.15 at the same time that President Trump is supposed to show up to be arraigned uh, coming up uh, another situation going back to the 1920s and 30s where the Ku Klux Klan was rising in America and there was actually a scandal that stopped that rise and that drive for power. That's the subject of a new book by Pulitzer Prize winner Timothy Egan who joins us coming up. Great show. I listen to you every day. The Michael Medved Show. All across America, this is the Michael Medved Show. I know that a lot of people out there, there are millions of people out there who uh, view what happened yesterday with the indictment of the President of the United States, former President of the United States, uh, was a very, very dark day for America, and you keep hearing the word unprecedented. It's actually a very appropriate time to talk about some other very dark days and dark days when uh, America came you can say at least in parts of the country uh, closer to a racist and fascist regime uh, than ever before and that's the subject of this wonderful and very important new book by Timothy Egan 
It's called A Fever in the Heartland. It's posted up on our website. And the subtitle tells you what the book is about. The Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. Uh, Tim is a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, reporter. He's a National Book Award winner for previous books on the history of the country. Uh, he's been a guest on our show several times before. Uh, Tim, congratulations on A Fever in the Heartland. Michael, thank you so much. And again, it's a, it's a wonderful honor to be on with you on the eve of publication of Fever. But um, I'm just I'm pleased and thrilled to be on with you. Well, thank you, and uh, appreciate your coming on. Uh, first of all, if you can sketch out a little bit what you do in, in the book so vividly and in some detail, uh, how is it that in the 1920s, long after the Civil War, long after the events dramatized and actually fabricated in Birth of a Nation, uh, how did the, the Ku Klux Klan suddenly become such a tremendous political power in both parties and nearly taking over the state of Indiana? How'd that happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a tale I knew nothing about. And as I got into it, I saw it almost as a thriller. I mean, because we, as you mentioned in your opening, American democracy had a real close call in the 1920s. Now, we think of the Klan as two periods, Reconstruction, just after the Civil War, when they were offended by 36% of the population of the South, going from enslaved people to citizens, and the 1960s, about 100 years later, when they were largely a minority, but they were you know, acts of terror throughout the South. In fact, their peak was in the 1920s, the Jazz Age, the Gatsby Age, and they had upwards of 6 million sworn members. They had several members of uh, several members of the United States Senate. They had at least four governors. They had um, 75 members of Congress were in their sway. And their hatreds, to go to your how question, Michael, had expanded vastly. Their targets this time were Jews. They hated Jews because it was the peak of immigration coming largely from where my wife's family is from, which is what, it now, what is now Ukraine. So Jews at the start of the 20th century fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe were coming to this country in large numbers, and that greatly upset them. Secondly, Catholics, different kinds of Catholics, Catholics from Sicily. Sicily alone sent 800,000 people to our shores in the first 20 years of the 20th century. And then third was the Great Migration of Blacks. The Klan had always hated Blacks, but suddenly they were moving north and trying to establish themselves and get out of the hatred of the South. Those three elements, combined with sort of social liberation of women and all the stuff that was going on with prohibition and jazz, that sort of things that were disrupting society, caused there to be a huge reaction to it. And so they longed for an America that would look like something other than what was happening in the 1920s. And they took off. They just took off. It was the golden age of fraternal clubs as well. You know, <clears throat> Elks and Redmond and the people who did these secret rituals and lodges. This this fraternal club, which had a, a children's brigade and a women's brigade. Yeah, I, I'd um, never heard before of Ku Klux Kitties, and, and that I mean, was a was real organization. I looked at countless pictures in Indiana of these parades where 20,000, 30,000 people would turn out for a Klan parade, and there's the float coming down with the Ku Klux Kitties, a little 8-, 9-, and 10-year-olds with robes and hoods on, um, professing this banner of hatred. 
I call my book A Fever in the Heartland because it was one of these periodic times, you're well-versed in this more than I am, where America goes hot and cold. In this case, it went hot bad. Luckily, the forces of good eventually prevailed, as we usually do. We usually follow darkness with renewal. But this was a time of darkness. And what a story about the way the forces of uh, goodness and decency and Americanism actually prevailed because it's melodramatic, it's uh, um, a, a bit uh, uh, racy, uh, and uh, it involves uh, all kinds of uh, personal flaws on this magnetic leader of the Klan in Indiana named D.C. Stevenson. Uh, he really did view himself as a potential uh, power in the country, and perhaps as a president someday. Now, talk about uh, him. I, Who was he? I, at first, at first, I thought this was preposterous, and I had never heard of D.C. Stevenson either. But yet, he just dominated the news in 1925. All the major papers covered his trial, and I won't tell you what happens at his trial. But so he's a classic American con man. You think of the. The music man, you know, we've got trouble right here in River City. Well, that he was a music man of hate, and he drifted into Indiana in 1921, and in four short years, he controlled the entire state. He became the Grand Dragon, <clears throat> the largest realm of the Ku Klux Klan the world had ever seen. 300,000 men sworn oath to hatred to white supremacy in the 1920s, with D.C. Stevenson as their leader. And so this drifter, who had a great gift of gab and was charismatic and promised things that could never be delivered on and said all the things that people wanted to hear to play to their fears, that the Jews are an inferior race, that they were mongrelizing America. They urged sterilization of all these undesirables. And he had these mass, mass rallies. One rally was 200,000 people by the Klan estimate on 4th of July in Kokomo. Now, Stevenson's downfall was his character he though he was a wizard of oz he was this you know figure revered all his words were waited upon he was a charlatan a con man a drunk a fraud and a serial rapist and it was his all these major institutions had tried to bring him down there were some brave rabbis throughout indiana who united with an irish american barrister named uh, patrick o'donnell and they tried to bring him down and failed the University of Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, took they got their name, the Fighting Irish, because they, they rioted against the Klan, threw potatoes at them, and chased them nearly out of town. Um, they failed. All these institutions had failed to bring him down. And in fact, the peak, I don't know if you knew this or not, but in the night, I didn't know this. The 1924 Republican Convention, they call it, it was in Cleveland. Time Magazine puts the leader of the Klan on its cover because the Klan was so influential in both the Democrats and the Republicans' national conventions. So on the eve of this great power, when they have six million people, they've elected governors and senators, and Stevenson's plotting his Senate seat, which is vacant, and ultimately his rise to the presidency, one woman, one woman, and this is why I'm interested in people, people in the margins of history, brings him down. She alone stands up to hit this monster, this sexual monster, this cannibal. He's a... He's the most horrible human being you can imagine, but nobody knows this until she exposes him. Okay, this uh, this actually uh, is uh, one of those things that is thrilling to read. So no spoilers here. Uh, the book is called uh, A Fever in the Heartland, the 
Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. And what's amazing about this is it's all true. And it's a bit of American history that I think has some messages for today. Uh, Tim, you, can you hang on for a few minutes to talk about some of those messages? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Tim Egan is the author of this, uh, this book, and uh, he just writes so well. It is spellbinding. The only problem with getting this book, which is about to be published, is published formally on April 4th next week, is uh, you might lose some sleep because you won't want to put it down. We will be right back with Timothy Egan, author of A Fever in the Heartland, coming up. Michael Medved Show, so honored to be speaking with Tim Egan. He is the author of the sensational new book, and it really is. Uh, I've been uh, speaking to my wife about this book uh, ever since I began reading it. The book is called A Fever in the Heartland, and part of the reason that I, I relate so closely to the book is because uh, my grandparents on both sides, my Ukrainian grandparents and my German grandparents, uh, being Jewish immigrants, were precisely the kind of people the Ku Klux Klan was trying to keep out of America. And thank God they didn't succeed. Uh, the book is about what happened to the Klan. How did it go from its peak to ultimately its increasing irrelevance? Uh, the lessons that people can learn from this book as they apply to this moment in our history, uh, what do you uh, hope that people take away, Tim Egan? Yeah, I mean, you don't, as a historian, you don't go time traveling unless you, you're looking for something you know, that relates to today. And I spent the three years of the pandemic time traveling in a fairly dark period, which was 1920s Indiana, then controlled by the Ku Klux Klan, one man. And my gosh, you know, this is 100 years ago, and you see this sort of vein that runs off hot and cold through our history. I mean, they applied it to the Irish in the 1840s and 1850s when they had the Know Nothing movement, which was directed specifically at the waves of my great-grandparents who came ashore from the Great Famine, and Know Nothing movement was a direct reaction to them. And then you see it goes, calms down, and then it pops up again in the 1920s, directed at your grandparents and um, grandparents of Italian-Americans, say, from the South, or other people from Greece or something like that. So you see that, and you wonder why this great nation that's based on an idea, that's our, that's our exception, is that we alone are not tribal or nationalistic, we're based on an idea. Uh, retreats every now and then into sort of a faux nationalism that everybody is a white Christian Protestant, which is not true, of course. Also, the other thing is that, and this is the important lesson I think that's universal, why do we fall for a con man? I can't answer that. Why? Because we want to hear, we're willing to overlook a person's flaws because that person is saying what we want to hear. In this case, 
the Grand Dragon of Indiana, D.C. Stevenson, the monster at the center of the story, the serial rapist, um, said he was above the law. He said repeatedly and aloud, and no one really challenged him, the direct quote, which by 1925, everyone in the nation, because this was a sensation on a level of a Scopes monkey trial, he said, I am the law in Indiana. And the trial that forms the last third of my book tests that premise of whether he's above the law. So we're a nation of laws. And what we're seeing today with what's going on in New York, the indictment, whether you think the indictment is, is, is a phony BS weak case or not, no person in America is above the law. And that's why we have a court. We're a na- we, we either are a nation of laws or we are not. And Stevenson challenged that. He absolutely controlled the legislature, the judiciary. He had, he had a judge throw a editor, a crusading editor in Muncie, Indiana, in jail just for criticizing him, with criticizing a ruling. A Klan judge, and he never even had a hearing on it. He just threw him in the penal farm. They threw out the First Amendment. So so you, the lesson is also, and, and maybe you can answer this, why do we fall for con men every now and then? Why do we go for people who are awful human beings is it because they play to our fears and what we want to hear? I don't know. With people concerned, and people are, I think, rightly concerned by raising rising anti-Semitism, their rising uh, prejudice and, and bigotry and hatred for people of Asian ancestry, uh, and, of course, uh, racism has been a theme in American life for a long time. Uh, people look at this moment as a very dark and dangerous moment. Uh, you, I, I, I know from reading you elsewhere, have more confidence in uh, America uh, finding its uh, true essence and uh, sustaining that true essence. What's your confidence based on? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And I, I always believe... You know, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning if I didn't believe that tomorrow was going to be better than yesterday, that tomorrow as a nation is going to be better. But being the more you know history, the more you get that confidence because you see us getting out of those those tragedies. And this civil war, nothing can compare to that. The um, Great Depression was when people basically stopped having babies. I did a book on the Dust Bowl, and the, it was the first time in American history where the birth rate just plummeted because people didn't even believe in tomorrow. They, wouldn't, they didn't think it was safe to even bring a child into this world. But things turned around. And at the, at the height of this clan, you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned it, we're having more anti-Semitic incidents now, hate crimes directed against Jews, than any time since they started keeping track in the 1970s, started keeping track across the board. There was a, a report that was underplayed, but it was released just a couple of days ago on that. Um, well, you know, we know where this comes from. And it's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's, it's an old thing, but we've, we've gotten out of it. Now, what happened in the 20s, even as this hatred is going on, even as they're, you know, planting Jim Crow North, almost as a colonizing force in the North, jazz is flourishing. Louis Armstrong records the first African-American jazz record in a town in Indiana on the very same day that they have the biggest rally ever for the Ku Klux Klan. Now, mind you, they had to haul ass pretty quickly to get out of town safely, but they cut this jazz record um, on the exact same day of this Klan rally. Life, exuberance, positivity prevailed on that day. The great triumphs of the first first wave of 1910s and 1920s Jews 
were starting to be seen on Tin Pan Alley and Broadway and in Hollywood. Um, so on the one hand, we're closing the door, and it was a great, great tragedy, as you mentioned. You know, it affected your family in a personal way. But on the other hand, the people we've led in are showing what's the greatness of this renewing of our strength. So I just, you know, my, I'm not afraid of back. You know, I know there's a great debate in our country right now, and your program is all about having a great debate. You know, should we be afraid to look at the dark parts of our history? I think that in many ways it makes us stronger to see how we overcame it. If you just had a smiley face version of history, you wouldn't be much of a patriot. Yeah. And the whole idea of overcoming some of these moments of darkness, uh, I, I've come to believe, and I've, I've done two books about it, uh, my most recent book, God's Hand on America, it's no accident. I, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, our founders and all the greatest leaders in American history, including great leaders more recently, like President Reagan or President Franklin Roosevelt, uh, actually saw that uh, there was a providential aspect to American mm. deliverance. Mm -hmm. I want to conclude with a comment on that. Well, <laughs> you now you've, you've asked me to raise my bar pretty high, Michael. <laughs> 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 um, you know, so my last book was a, was called The Pilgrimage to Return, and it was about trying to find faith in Europe and Going through it right, and about the, that walk that you took in Spain, right. and again, an unforgettable <laughs> book and very much worth reading. But go ahead. Thank you. But I, you know, I walked twelve hundred miles on a pilgrim trail to to try to rediscover my lapsed, you know, Catholic faith, and to, and I came away just you know really impressed by the you know magic and power and awe of people who do genuine people of faith, and then that, that fact that. Um, you know, from the, the French Revolution, they tried to change the Church of, Temple, Church of Notre Dame into the Temple of Reason. And, you know, I came away feeling like atheism was like light beer, as someone said. It's just, there's no kick there. But I, you know, you look at the Enlightenment and you look at how it sailed across the shores and you see that America is the, is the, the first and most significant country founded on Enlightenment ideals. And so that gives you gives you great confidence. And I think, you know, the fact that we've gotten out again, my book on the Dust Bowl was about, it was called The Worst Hard Time. And it was not just uh, financially bleak, but physically bleak. I mean, dark, mountainous, thunderous storms of dust rolling over people. And many people thought God was punishing them. But, you know, but we then entered World War II and saved the world, and, you know, the 50s we were flourishing again. So, I mean, you've got to take the long view. You've got to take the long view. And that's what I would recommend for people looking at what's going on this week. For the first time in history, an American president is indicted. We're more divided than ever. But if you don't take the long view, you won't get out of bed in the morning. And uh, there's every reason to get out of bed. The predictions that people had of death and destruction, of unrest, of uh, out-of-control protest, seem not to be materializing, which is a good sign. Another good sign, and an incredibly readable book, A Fever in the Heartland by my guest, Timothy Egan. Highly recommended for everybody in this greatest nation on God's green earth.